0: So the reading this morning is taken from John 12, beginning at verse 20, and can be found on page 1671 of the Church Bibles. John 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deafened their hearts, deadened their hearts. So they may neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. This is the word of
1: the Lord. Um, Father, we come to this uh, really central story uh, about Jesus, about the things he said, about how he understood who he was, what he came to do, and so much more. And we pray that you would open our hearts afresh, that you would encourage us and excite us once more uh, for our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, chapter 12 is quite big. Thank you, Catherine, for reading as much of it as you did. There's quite a lot, and you'll notice uh, the keen-eyed amongst you will have noticed that I skipped the anointment, uh, Jesus' anointing at Bethany, and I skipped the triumphal entry as well. Um, and on the one hand, I feel, you know, that's, that's awkward, but we want to get to the nub of this chapter, and we find that what we see in John, in John chapter 12 is the end of the kind of the book of signs about who Jesus was and now the beginning of the book of the coronation what he came to do so the first 13 chapters and the stories in the first 13 chapters of John are about who he is and then we now move into the sorry the first 11 chapters and then we move into this what has he come to do and how is he going to do it and those are really significant things. So the anointing proclaims him as king. And there's the beginning. A king needs a crown for a coronation and the triumphal entry to come in parade and grand procession uh, to his people. And that's partly why I read from Zechariah 9 this morning to remind us that this is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And there, are, there is so much in this chapter. I am only going to be able to skim the surface unless you want to be here sitting there tomorrow. No takers. So right. <laughs> so um, let's let's have a look at what's going on. And first of all, this is how Jesus understands his death. This is how he understands what he has come for. And I don't know if you've got lots of friends who sort of have got an opinion about Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily fit with this. It doesn't fit with what you believe. Um, there are plenty of people who would say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Uh, He was a great example of how to live. He was perhaps misguided or ahead of his time. People have lots of different views about who Jesus was. It's not tending to be this one, so I want to get into that today. You must, C.S. Lewis said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the essence of this. Who is this man, Jesus? What has he come to do? And we find that the... um, It's precipitated, if you like, with these Greeks. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Uh, The writer Simon Ponsonby says that his fathers, in his father's Baptist church, um, somebody has put those words on the lectern, on a brass plaque. Sir, we want to see Jesus, as a reminder to the preacher not to come with anything else but the fullness of the gospel and glorifying. Jesus Christ and they've come let's have a look verse 19 in fact we see that the Pharisees are so wound up uh, about Jesus they can't do anything about him we've seen the raising of Lazarus people are super excited uh, and it's starting to draw attention from the wider community and we see in verse 19 of chapter 12 see this is getting us nowhere (laughs) look how the whole world has gone after him and in fact. Almost the next, well, the next thing is that some Greeks come to see him. It's possible that they would be Greek converts to Judaism, proselytes coming to worship at the temple. They would be allowed in the court of the Gentiles as God-fearing Greeks. It's possible that they're not at all, but they're interested in Judaism. And I find that quite an interesting comment because um, their world was full of Gods whose stories were no better than our average plot of EastEnders or, what, or Brookside or whatever whatever else there is out there. The gods in their stories were no better than they. There was no sort of great heroic figure. There was just plot and counterplot, revenge and confusion and intrigue. But there wasn't particularly a story of great moral teaching. So maybe they came because this God that the Jews have got, you know, we, he's, stra- he's straightforward. We can understand that. He's consistent. Well, so that's an important thing, isn't it, to be bringing to, you know, bringing to people. There's a consistent God who said he will always do good for his people, who will always love his people, who has made a blood covenant with his people. Who has promised that one day he will be with them, uh, he will be with us, and we will be with him? And he's good on his promises, a consistent God, rather than the vagaries and the trends and the influences of the YouTube world in which we live today. It might be that that's a helpful thing for some people, and it was helpful probably for the Greeks then. And they've also possibly that they've heard that the Jews have rejected Jesus and Jesus has got into it again with them and maybe they said well if he's not for them is he for us? Is Jesus for me? What a great question to have. What a great thing to be able to ask someone. Do you think Jesus is for you? Because here are the Greeks coming to find out if he could be what they're looking for. That's that's a wonderful thing to do, isn't it? And it's in this moment that Jesus declares the hour, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We know it's not literally a 60-minute period of time. It's it's a sort of a figure of speech. The, The time of my glorification has come. We know that he sees, he sees and understands what he has come for, the gravity of it, the depth of it, the horror of it. And Jesus comes to explain what that is like, what it will include, what it will involve. I don't know if you've seen the film Stranger Than Fiction. It is an excellent film. It is available on Amazon Prime for about £4.31 DVD. It is the best. It's one of the films that I'd love to have our cinema club running when they reopen. It's a. If you don't like Will Ferrell, don't worry, he's not Will Ferrell in this film. But in it, he plays a man who's, who discovers that his life is being written by a top-selling author somewhere else. And he discovers that he can hear her voice dictating his story. Now, he lives a fairly boring, humdrum kind of existence. And it's not really going very far. So he goes to find out, find this writer and say, what's this all about? And she says, well, I've written your life story and I'm turning it into a book. And the stuff that's typed, you can hear me typing, has happened. And the stuff over there in the written manuscript is yet to happen. So, of course, he says, well, can you show me what it says? And she gives him the manuscript, and he discovers that he dies. So, I don't want to die. I haven't really started my life yet. I haven't really got anywhere. I haven't done anything. I'm not in a relationship. I haven't got children. My job's boring. I haven't really visited all of these places, and blah, blah, blah. But she says, no, the story only works if you die. So, he takes the written manuscript, the stuff yet to happen, He goes away to read it. He comes back to the writer the next day and he says, you're right, I have to die. And in conversation with a colleague, she says, uh, the writer says, it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's going to die and then dies. But if the man knows he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing that he could stop it, well, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? He sees that his life has meaning and purpose. He begins to bring sense to what he's doing. And Jesus is doing the same in this passage. He's bringing all of this together to say, this is what I'm about. And I wonder what I am about. And I wonder what you are about how do we see ourselves do we see our can we see the meaning and purpose that's stranger than fiction which this book is <laughs> in many ways can we see the meaning and purpose that god is giving our lives and jesus talks about what will happen about losing his life and giving it up to others for others and he talks about, the, in verse 27, how troubled and disturbed he is, similar to when he sees the grief outside Lazarus's tomb. And yet he says, no, it was for this hour, this very reason that I came. He holds on to this purpose. I must die. I can't remember, I can't remember which um, psalm it is. It's quoted in Hebrews. Behold, I have come. It is written about me in the scrolls. Jesus is coming to fulfill his purpose. And so when people ask us, perhaps perhaps you've never wrestled with this yourself, but when we think about, well, why did Jesus have to die if he was such a good person? If he was so great, why why did he do it? Why did he not just save himself? This was the accusation at the very cross, wasn't it? Come down. You said you could rebuild the temple. Come down and get yourself off the cross. Mocking voices that do not understand. Jesus Describes what he has come to do. Let's have a look. Now, verse 31. Now is time for judgment on this world. Jesus comes to reveal the sin of man's world. He comes to expose it. He comes to show just how much it is. He's come to a world that he made and his own did not even receive him or recognize him. Such is the deeply entrenched nature of our sin that we would rather not speak to God and come to him, recognize him and welcome him when he comes to us. He comes, therefore, as the representative of what we are not, what we should have been, but he also comes as the representative of God's justice and God's mercy. He comes to show us that God wants to resolve this problem. His justice, he cannot tolerate sin, but he knows we can't bear the price and he does it himself. He takes the burden and the punishment for us. He tells us that the consequences of sin are serious, so serious that the Son of God came to die to put it right he comes to tell us what that is like and it's interesting isn't it in Mark chapter 7 Jesus talks about what we are like if you have a look at Mark chapter 7 on page uh, 1564 we may think well you know I've been quite a good person this week haven't done some of the things I would do did some of the things I wouldn't normally do we may say, okay, you know, by and large, I'm quite a good person. We hear it a lot, I'm sure. But deep down, we're tainted by sin. It's as though that we're, a, we're the water system for a house and something rotten has plopped into the tank, a dead bird or a rat, and every, all the water is going to be faintly tainted with that somehow. Jesus describes what we're like in verse 20 of Mark 7. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make man unclean. Jesus knew full well what he was getting into. He knew who he had come to save and what we were really like. We press on, Jesus um, says that the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world will be driven out. We fail sometimes to think, to remember, sorry, that, that spiritual warfare is about moving from darkness to light, and until we've walked with light in with Jesus, we are in darkness. We are under the rule of the prince of this world, and he has going to be driven out by the power of Jesus, whose Perfect obedience substitutes the disobedience of Adam at the fall. That he comes and gives himself, binds himself to God's plan for our sake. And that is something Satan cannot deal with, obedience to God. He cannot wrench you from that. He can rage and foam and what have you, but obedience to God he cannot deal with. We see also that he will be lifted up. Verse 32 When I am lifted up from the earth. We see it in two ways, if you like. It's the the coronation, if we can accept that the cross is a throne, that this is the place from which Christ will rule and reign, it's the place from which he will overthrow darkness disempower sin, assuage the wrath of God against us, bring in a new kingdom. He will come and be lifted up. And his lifting up will be taking on this bloody and blessed, messy mantle that we would shudder to see, and yet it is his crowning. He comes to take that up. But it will also we see this lifting up, this raising up of this king will also fourth thing, draw all people to himself. The whole world will come to see this. Isaiah talks about people will be in aghast, Kings of nations will stare, horrified of what they've done, of what has happened. But he is drawing all nations to him. Remember that on the cross, King of the Jews, Jesus, King of the Jews, was written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, the languages of the world of faith, the world of philosophy and science, and the world of government and legislation. Jesus' rule is over all of those things. He will make things all right, all things right. Colossians talks about being all things, being under his feet. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And this act establishes him as the king over everything. He has, and that's good news, I think. Yes? Great. Okay. Sorry. Just have a breather. (laughs) But That's really good news, isn't it? Because it means that every avenue of life that we're involved in is something that Jesus can be part of. Something that he can help with, something that he can influence, something he's got some, some view on, something that he can do something new with. And so we find that all of these things are coming under God's rule in Jesus Christ. I like this story. <laughs> it's a tough one. I like that the, G, the Greeks come looking for Jesus. It's why I focused on them, because it brings so much richness out of just a few uh, verses. Why else? Why else? would a good man die? Well, we have something of an answer here. We have something that we can point to, to say, this makes a difference. It makes a difference if we can put Jesus at the center of our mission. Sometimes all churches are guilty of this. We're all guilty of it, me as well. we say, oh, come to church, rather than talk about Jesus. Come to Jesus. They want to see Jesus, not churches. It's really significant, isn't it? They came not looking for the Jewish religion or whatever. They, you know, they came for Jesus. He is the answer. And people want to know more about him. And he is the center. And perhaps he's not governing in your life where he could. Perhaps there's opportunities for you to, to bring him into parts of your work or, or your lives in ways that you hadn't thought of. I think that's an encouraging thing to, to explore, isn't it? We may need to be encouraged. Maybe we need to pray for people that they're still wrestling with things from darkness that actually Jesus wants to break, that actually Jesus wants to set them free from. That's that's in there too. That's what Jesus said he came to do. On the cross, doesn't just bring forgiveness. It brings the power to break the bondage of sin. No longer are we in darkness. He has no power over us. Darkness could not overcome darkness light and maybe we need to think about lifting Jesus up more in our life We've, you know, uh, uh, the worship of the last 20 odd years in, in, in sort of western culture has been about Jesus as my friend and truly he says you are my friends, but he's also the king he's also lord of all sometimes it's good to raise him up and recognize him for who he really is C.S. Lewis again tells us he's a lion but he's not a tame one let's not try and domesticate him you know, that's really important as well, isn't it? And maybe we, need the, we might not have the courage of Philip, and we need to bring somebody in, like Andrew, uh, to, to bring people into understanding who Jesus is, different backgrounds, different understandings, of, different understandings of how we might be able to present Jesus to people. But I think what stands out for me is that G, the Greeks were drawn to who he was and if he could be for them. And I, I wonder if that's, that's the essence of this. That's the essence of mission. That's the essence of what we're, we're about. I think it was Gerard Hughes who talked about how Jewish people today would say, if you want to understand what we're about, come to our homes. See how Judaism, our faith, lives out. What would we say? Come and see. Come and see what difference it's made to us how it shapes our lives, how it's part of our work, our conversation, our demeanour, our way we treat other people. How does it make a difference? What, how has it impacted us? Where can we draw people so that they will answer that? As the old prophet said, you know, people will see your blessing and ask where God is. You want to be shown the way to God. And there's the draw. That's the challenge. That's the thing for us as people of God today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you know what's going on for each of us. And Father, we pray that you would help us see what difference you can make in each area of our lives we thank you for those four different ways in which your death changes everything and we pray that by your spirit that power will change us we pray that we will be conformed more to your likeness through pu- humility through prayer through study through friendship through courage through gentleness, through listening. All in your power and all for your glory, Lord. Amen.